Hey, um, you know, when I was in, um, I first came to Christ and I was in college and the guy that was helping me grow, he basically was like, man, there's only two things that's going to determine how different you are in five years. There's only two things that determine how different you are in five years. He said, the friends you hang out with and the books you read. And I was like, man, that is so true. Like, there's only two things, the friends you hang out with and the books you read. And so I thought, man, you know, I reacclimated my friend group and tried to make sure I had some Christ followers in my fraternity who were really cheering me on. But then I thought, okay, the books we read. You know, I wasn't a big reader. But I thought, he said the books we read. And I thought, man, when it came to Christianity, I, I, can't, I can't know where we're going unless I know where we've been. And so I thought, man, instead of, instead of starting with, like, where the gospel's going, I want to figure out how we got right here. And so I ordered the first book on the history of missions. And it was a biography of a guy named John Stott. Or, I'm sorry, John Mott. And I thought, oh, my goodness. This guy, John Mott, went to Cornell University. And his sophomore year, he helped start a student movement that would touch the nations. And I was pumped up. Here I am, a freshman. And then I bought William Carey's An Inquiry. And I learned, oh my goodness, in five chapters, 86 pages, he takes you on a journey from the Muslim to the Buddhist to the Hindu world in 1796. And I just got fired up. And I realized, oh my goodness, how many books did John Mott write? 23. I'm going to read all of them. How many books did William Carey write? One. I'm doing it. How many, and I just started to go through all these people, and I realized it's so true. First of all, what determines who you are in five years is the friends you hang out with and the books you read. But second of all, don't neglect the history. As Trey mentioned, man, it's so important. Before we can, before we, you know, in order to reach the, the, the present, you have to know what, where you've been in the past. And so I just want to take you on a journey. And some of this stuff will go all the way back to my dorm room in college, where I first opened the book and began to read and highlighted it. And uh, we're going to start, like Trey said, 1792. The, the Protestant mission force begins really in 1792. And um, it's from a man named William Carey. William Carey. And some of these people we talk about tonight, you're going to be real fluid with. And some of them you might be like, wow, I've never heard of him. And so what I would encourage you to do is if, if something sparks your interest, man, jot down their name. And then if you can't figure out a book to read on it, text me or email me. And I'll tell you my favorite one to read about that person. Um, we're going to be talking about a lot of names and dates. We're going to be talking about a quote and uh, quotes. And as we do, I just want the Lord to be able to speak to you and say, Lord, what's my, like, what's my tagline for my life? Like, what's my one, one passion, one theme that you want to just make into my North Star? William Carey, I mean, here he is. He comes to Christ at age 17, and um, he ends up becoming a Baptist minister. Now, he would moonlight as a Baptist minister. He wasn't a very good speaker. He moonlighted as a Baptist minister. At, the, at daytime, he was a shoe cobbler. So he, made, he, he fixed people's shoes from all over. They would come in, and he was fascinated with the world. He made a, a leather map of the world. This is 1790s, okay? He made a leather map of the world, and when a traveler would come through, he'd say, where are you coming from? And the traveler would say, I'm coming from the Mohammedans. That's what they called the Muslims. I'm coming from the Mohammedans. How many Mohammedans are there? 70 million. And he'd write down 70 million. Another traveler, where are you coming from? I'm coming from the Hindu world. How many Hindus? There's 50 million. How many Buddhists? There's, there's 30 million. And he was, he, meanwhile, he's studying the Bible. He teaches himself Greek, Hebrew, and Latin. 
And it's, he's, he's fascinated with Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and I'm with you always, even the ends of the age. And, he, and as he wrestles with that, he's like, man, wait a second. The historical thought of his denomination was that was only for the 12 disciples, the 12 original apostles. And Carrie's like, well, man, if baptism in the name of the Holy Spirit, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit is for all believers... Why do they lump off, go ye, for only the 12? And the guy who baptized William Carey's name was John Ryland. And John Ryland made William Carey as a Southern Baptist go to the monthly Baptist meetings. And so what would happen is all the Baptists in London, England would gather. And before they dismissed, John Ryland would say, he would call on someone. And he'd say, ask a question that we may ponder and then we'll dismiss. On this particular day, he called on Carey. Carey, he's like, Carey, he knew Carey well. Carey, ask a question. Carrie says no. Ryland's like, Carrie, ask a question. Carrie says no. Third time, Carrie, ask a question. He stands up and he says this. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Is that just for the apostles or for all believers? And in that moment, John Ryland, the quote that, that, that he said, he says this. Young man, sit down. When God wants to reach the heathen, he can do it without your help or mine. Well, today, if you get mad at someone, you blog about it, right? This is 1792. So what does he do? He spends eight years crafting an 86-page book, five chapters long, and he called it an inquiry. He called it an inquiry. And, and, and you can get this on Amazon, and, and it is a, it's powerful. First three chapters, State of the World. Fourth chapter, how Matthew 28 is for all believers. Fifth chapter, how you can play a part. And then he stands up in his congregation, and he says this. He says, I will sail to India. India, at that moment in time, had 23 national languages. Not one of them had the Bible translated. He says, I will sail to India. That's a five-month and ten-day journey. He says, I will sail to India if someone will hold the rope. And, of course, his church ended up backing him. He sails to India where in the first few years, life begins to fall apart. His five-year-old son dies. His wife goes mentally insane. Much of his translation work was burned up in a fire. Seven years, no known convert. Seven years. And then, seven years into his ministry, a Hindu named Krishna Pal professes Christ. He goes to the Ganges River, and as he baptizes Krishna Pal, on one side of the river is his wife in a straitjacket, mentally insane. And on the other side is his co-partner in ministry in handcuffs for embezzling all of his money. But every day, Carrie woke up and did the hard things. He was a plotter. Every day he did the hard things. 41 years in India. Never returned back to England. And at the end of his life, he had successfully translated scripture into 300 million people's language. Three complete portions of the Bible, 23 portions in the New Testament. And before he died, he said this. He made it, he made it crystal clear. 
what he wanted on his tombstone. I want my funeral to be as plain as possible. I want the following inscription and nothing more on the stone which commemorates me. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms I fall. A wretched, poor, and helpless worm. On thy kind arms. What does William Carey teach us today? That Matthew 28 is for all believers. No matter what age or stage. No matter, you might go further geographically than me. You might cross an ocean. I might cross a campus or a zip code. But we're all to participate. That's what Carrie teaches us. And then guess what? The inquiry, remember the inquiry? It makes its way into America. The inquiry that Carrie wrote, this 86-page pamphlet, made its way to a man named Samuel Mills. Samuel Mills was a freshman at, at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. And his freshman year, he takes a Bible study. They meet in this field just off of campus. They would meet in a field. They would pray. They didn't want to be harassed on campus for their faith. And they would take Carrie's book. They had in one hand Carrie's book. In another hand, they had the Bible. And Samuel Mills would take these four other guys in this field. And one day it started to hail and lightning and thunder. And they came in so fast they couldn't run back to campus. They started freaking out. They're like, we're going to die single. I mean, they could not figure this out, right? They're like, no. But what happened was there was this haystack. If you know anything about a haystack, cows eat the base of the haystack. So it provided like a mushroom effect. And they tucked underneath this, this during the storm. When they came out after the storm resided, Samuel Mills said this, how many missionaries has America sent? This is 1806. And the answer is zero. Zero. And Samuel Mills says, is that God's fault or is that our fault? He says, we can do this if we will. The power of the Godhead is at our disposal. We can do this if we will. From these five guys, the first six mission agencies started in America. Samuel Mills, after he graduated from Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, went up to seminary in Andover in Boston. And at Andover Seminary, he recruits a guy named Adoniram Judson. And he challenges Adoniram Judson, be the first to sail with the church to the nations. And Adoniram Judson says, I will go and, eight, and join William Carey. And he sailed the 11-month journey from America around Africa and around India to meet Carrie in Calcutta and then was sent up to Burma. That was Adoniram Judson. Samuel Mills was pretty excited. The first missionary launched in 1812. He made trips back and forth to Africa. And uh, at age 35, the father of American missions, Samuel Mills, falls sick on the boat and dies. And for fear that something would happen with the other people on, on, on the crew because of his sickness, they decided to throw his body overboard. The founding father of American missions, there's no grave you can go see. As Trey mentioned, we've got, we've got six kids. And my wife and I wanted to be the ones that picked their heroes. And so we namesaked their middle names after he, who we want their heroes to be. So I have a son, he's 12, and his name is Brody Mills. And right when you walk in our kitchen, there's a picture of Samuel Mills, his hero. So we launched out with William Carey in England. 
We jumped over to America with Samuel Mills. Now we're going to jump back over to Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, oh my goodness. What Hudson Taylor's life shows us is the power of a mobilizer. I mean, Hudson Taylor, he was a missionary in Asia for 50 years, but his life was not just a plus one. It was a times hundred. And you're going to see that. You're going to see how many, how many, how many um, times it starts with Taylor. He came to Christ at age 15. He was bored in his father's study. This is pre-Xbox. And um, he went in and started reading. He picks up a book called The Four Gospels. It's just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in chronological order. He starts reading it. He comes to Christ. He goes to the past. He goes to church. He goes where his parents go. He goes to the pastor. He says, hey, I just came to Christ. Give me something to read. And the pastor says, here, read this. It's called China's Spiritual Needs. He starts reading about China. And what's interesting about this book is the application was go to med school, be a doctor, and go to China as a missionary. I mean, that was a very, you know, small application. It's like, hey, let's do this. So he's like, I guess I go to China. He um, ends up sailing to Shanghai, China. He arrives there with the mission agency, London Missionary Society. And when he gets there, he's there for a few years. And he's like, man, this is, this is, this is not what I expected. And his mission agency is like, what's the matter, Taylor? And he's like, this is not what I expected. Well, well, why not? Well, first of all, we're not allowed to dress Chinese. We have to wear top hats and tails. And any new converts of Chinese have to wear top hats and tails. Second of all, we can't live among the Chinese. We have to live in our compounds. And third of all, you're not allowing us to learn Mandarin. We have to teach them English and then share the gospel through English. And then during this time, it was about five years into his ministry, a businessman named Mr. Nee came to Christ. He was Buddhist. Hudson Taylor led Mr. Nee to Christ. Mr. Nee looked at Taylor shortly after he became a Christ follower. He said, Taylor, how long has the gospel been in England? Taylor said, excuse me? He says, this news you just told me, how long has England had it? Hundreds of years. He said, my father tried to find peace in Buddhism, Taoism, and Confucianism, and died without finding it. Why did you not come sooner? Why did you not come sooner? Why did you? And, and that haunted Taylor. He's like, man, forget this. I'm going back to America, and I'm going to pray for 23. I'm going to pray for 23, one for every province of China, to come back with me. He goes back to England. He recruits 16. He ends up founding his own mission agency called China Inland Mission that allowed you to dress like the Chinese, to learn the Chinese language, to, to, to live with them. He will spend the next 50 years of his life in China. The only way to get him back to England was to give him an audience of people to recruit. He actually made one trip to America. And uh, after 50 years of giving his life to China, here's what he says. If I had a thousand lives, I'd give every one of them to China. If I had a thousand lives, I'd give every one of them to China. Hudson Taylor died in 1905. 
that's when Jaun Sung, a person influenced by Taylor, was born. Hudson Taylor's ministry outlived him. Jaun Sung was a farmer. He's a peasant from a, a village near Shanghai where, where Taylor landed. And Jaun Sung had this dream. He said to his father, Dad, I want to study in America. And his dad's like, no, we can't even afford the boat ride. Let's not college. But he had this dream. He's a Taoist. He's like, man, this dream can happen. I'm a Taoist. Like he starts reading Taoist scriptures, chanting them. And then in, a, in, 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 in some incredible unforeseen circumstances, he got a scholarship from Ohio State University in Columbus, Ohio, inviting him and six other Chinese to sail to Columbus. They're the first Chinese to ever step foot, like to come and study. Like it was crazy how this happened. Well, he wants to prove himself. He gets his undergrad and his master's and is almost done with his doctorate in like four and a half years. I mean, it is freaky fast. The further he get, the closer he gets to graduation to get a doctorate, the more he realizes his resume is not fulfilling him. What he thought was going to fulfill him in education that he can show off to his father and his family and his friends, he found himself empty. His, his, uh, his academic advisor already thought he was a little crazy because he spiraled downward in depression. He went further into Taoism and tried to, tried to memorize Taoist works. And then a friend of his on campus at Ohio State said, hey, come with me to church. He went out of curiosity. He said he shows up at church and a 14-year-old girl hits the stage. And in 15 minutes, she gives her testimony and quotes a verse in Luke 23. He goes back to the dorms at Ohio State and he borrows a Bible from his friend. He begins to read Luke 23 all night. In the morning, he feels like God speaks over him, son, your sins are forgiven. He runs up and down the hallway. He freaks out. He runs all around campus. Now his academic advisor thinks he's gone insane. The academic advisor checks John Sung into an insane asylum in Columbus, Ohio for 193 days. He had two failed attempt escapes. During that time, all he had was his Bible. He read it through 40 times. He called it his desert experience. Mathematically, that's seven and a half hours a day. During that time, he changed his name from John to John after John the Baptist. He said, I want to be a forerunner of the gospel to China. His academic advisor comes and meets with him. And he says, please let me out. Please let me out. And he says, I will let you out if you, quickly, if you quickly finish your doctorate and sail back to China and never return. He says, I'll do it. He checks him out. He finishes his, his doctorate. He sails back. He's literally docking. He's docking at the ports of Shanghai. And he's got three degrees. He's got three degrees rolled up. His undergrad, his master's, and his doctorate. And he's like, this is going to hinder me from fully following Christ. He goes to the bow of the ship and he drops his undergrad. And he drops his master's. And he's getting ready to drop his doctorate when he realizes, I at least need to show my dad. And then he travels up and down China as an evangelist. He dies at age 41. This is one of only a few pictures of, of John Sung. Leslie T. Lyle just wrote a biography of John Sung. It's called 
John sung a fire in the east. You like that, didn't you? John sung a fire in the east. You're like, wow, that was good. That was good. Leslie T. Lyle. And you open Leslie T. Lyle, a fire in the far east, and, and, and it says, first paragraph, it's like, John sung is the greatest evangelist China's ever seen. And so it was only natural. My wife and I, two years ago, we adopted a Chinese from Shanghai. And I thought, wow, on the plane ride over, I took Leslie T. Lyle's biography on John Sung. And I stood in the court in Beijing, and we decided to call him Noble Sung. And you walk into our kitchen, top shelf, there's hopefully my son, Noble, his hero, John Sung. What does, what does Sung say? For a servant of God to have authority in every sentence he utters, he must suffer for the message he is to deliver. Without great tribulation, there is no great illumination. Hudson Taylor, remember him? Multiplied his life. He wasn't just a missionary. He was a mobilizer. Guess, man, Amy Carmichael, she's one of the more familiar girls. She's one of the more familiar people in, in, in church history. Uh, at, at age like 10, at age 10, she's from Ireland. Happy St. Patrick's Day. At age 10, okay, at age 10, her mom took her to a tea shop where they would go every Saturday. And she's all dolled up. She's got her hair up. She's got, you know. And during, she loved to sit at this one place right by the window. And she looks outside. And on this particular day, she's 10. On this particular day, she sees a girl outside the window who's homeless, dirty, about her age. And it messed with Carmichael. It messed with Amy. So she went home at age 10 and wrote this. When I grow up and money have, I know just what I'll do. I'll build a great big lovely place for little girls like you. I mean, wow. College student at age 20, she hears Hudson Taylor. In Ireland, she goes up to Hudson Taylor and she says, where do you want to send me? He says, Japan. We're trying to get missionaries to Japan. She signs up. She sails to Japan. After 16 months in Japan, she realizes something. Oh my goodness, the only thing I'm allergic to on planet Earth is the Japanese flower. I can't study. I break out in hives. I can't learn the difficult language. I sweat profusely. She says, this is God calling me home. And then she hears about an orphanage. Sail around Philippines. Sail around India. Sail all the way back up the coast of India. There's an orphanage in Mumbai where these girls are being sold to Hindu priests and sex trafficking. And they need someone to help rescue them and run an orphanage. And she remembers this poem. And she decides, I'm not going to go back to, to Ireland. I'm going to take the arduous journey and sail around Philippines, around the coast of India, up around. She stays there for 40 years. Never returns back to Ireland. Never marries. And 10 years, 10 years into it, she falls through the second story ceiling and, and is paralyzed and is bedridden. During that time, she writes 20 books on being a missionary. One girl wrote her from England. Dear Miss Carmichael, what's it like being a missionary? She wrote back. 
being a missionary is simply a chance to die. And so when Elizabeth Elliot decided to write the biography of Amy Carmichael, she titled it, A Chance to Die, after that letter she wrote back. Just before Amy Carmichael died, she made it clear what she wanted on her tombstone. Nothing elaborate, just a birdbath. I want my tombstone to be shaped like a birdbath and put it outside in the back. What do you want on it? Don't put my name. My name doesn't matter. Just put mother in Hindi. And so her tombstone today just says Alma. The word mother in Hindi. What a life. We've got a, uh, we've got a six-year-old daughter. Her birthday is today. I left blowing out a candle. My daughter right there. Had, have you even had the cake? She had we Did we leave? Had they sung happy birthday? I mean, that's how much I heart you guys, okay? What did I do for you? A lot, okay? We have a six-year-old, I have a six-year-old daughter today, and her name is Quincy Carmichael. You walk into our kitchen and our top shelf, you're going to see hopefully her hero, which is Amy Carmichael. Man, Hudson Taylor, he, he got a hold of one guy, C.T. Studd. Now, that's a cool name, isn't it? Y you know, C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd had a younger brother named George. There was an older brother named J.K., and he had one sister named Ima. And um, Ima Studd, I'm, that was a joke. Um, C.T. had, it was C.T. in the middle. J.K. was older. Remember J.K. Studd. George was the youngest. By his sophomore year at uh, Cambridge College, C.T. Studd was an household name. He'd already had tea with the queen because he was the greatest cricketer player England had ever seen. They had just beat Australia. He was heralded. I mean, he was on track to go pro. Every paper in America, every paper on the sports page was talking about C.T. Studd. I mean, he made his way all the way to America, his reputation. Oh, the Studd brothers, are they going to go pro? Which team's going to get them? Who's going to win the jug? And then he hears, he hears Hudson Taylor speak on his campus. Give up your small ambitions and move east. Give up your small ambitions and move east. And he's like, what are all the cricket accolades when the world is perishing? And he just lays that cricket ball down. He lays that cricket ball down. And he decides he's going to go to China for 10 years with Hudson Taylor. All the agents of pro cricket players were like, are you crazy? You're going to die in six months of malaria. He's got to change his mind. Some even sailed with him thinking he would change his mind. Not only did he not change his mind, he recruited six other cricket players to join him. There's CT. It was called the Cambridge Seven. I mean, now the papers are aflame. Are you joking? These seven are going to go die? They better pack their bags in a coffin because they're not coming back. Hudson Taylor began to hear the clamor of the newspapers in England. 
and he meets with the Cambridge Seven, and he says, men, don't go to China. And they're like, wait, what? Don't go to China? He's like, no. Instead, I want you to spend 15 months traveling campus to campus, inviting other students to board the boat with you. For the next 15 months, the Cambridge Seven spoke up and down England. I mean, I actually have uh, a guy named Broomhall followed him and wrote down what they spoke on. I actually found their talks written out, each one, each campus, and it's like my treasured book in my library. And I'm reading, oh my gosh, they're on this campus, they're at this campus, they're at this campus, they're at this campus, they're at this campus. 162 students decide to join the Cambridge Seven and go overseas. Hudson Taylor is like, this is crazy. We just doubled our mission agency. And then just before they were to sail, something happened. Edward Studd, CT's father, died unexpectedly, leaving the wealth, very wealthy, leaving the wealth to fall on the widowed mother. He didn't know what to do. J.K. Studd said, man, this is not the time we should sail. Even his widowed mother was like, don't. C.T. Studd was convinced that God was calling him to China. At first he was hesitant because of his widowed mother. Even J.K. Studd said, don't go. He prayed and prayed until God gave him a verse. And you know what? This is kind of a younger group here tonight. Let me just say this, okay? The number one reason the world has yet to be reached is because of Christian parents. Think about that. I mean, I spoke to a group last night, and I just challenged them, don't settle for your parents' best. It's too small. Settle for God's best. Because some of you, God's changing your life in college, and you have one problem, and it starts with your last name. Because your own parents are like, you can't do that. You can't go there. We have expectations, young lady. You're not going to take that internship. You're not going to raise support. You have value. You have worth. We've paid for your college. You better do what we say. You're not going to beg. What are we going to tell our friends you're doing? What are we supposed to do? We want to be impressed by your degree. So that was CT. He ends up sailing to China for 10 years. He then goes to, Af he then goes to India for eight years. And then he spends the rest of his life, 21 years, in Africa. His son-in-law, Norman Grubb. Oh, man, this is what I cut my teeth on in college. Norman Grubb wrote a biography about C.T. Studd. He called it this, C.T. Studd, Cricketeer and Pioneer. C.T. Studd, Cricketeer and Pioneer. My, my sophomore year of college, I took a yellow highlighter to that book, read it twice. And I just thought, man, I want to, I mean, look at some of these gems. Had I cared for the comments of people, I would have never been a missionary. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Some wish to live within the sound of a chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. So my wife and I got a chance to go to London. And of course, I'm like, wait a second. Wait a second. And I looked at a map. Like, I didn't pre-plan this. I just, I was like, we were in London and had a few days to spare. And I'm like, where is Cambridge College from London? And I pulled out a map. I still remember where I was standing. And I'm like, okay, it's literally this far. It was this far. Now I had to figure out, well, how far is this far, you know? 
it was this far, 80 minute bullet train. I'm like, oh, we're going. We get on that bullet train, we bullet up to Cambridge, we pop out of the tunnel and I'm like, I mean, selfie in front of the you know, campus sign. I mean, we're walking around. I was like, Jess, the Cambridge 7. She's like, I know. I was like, this is, we went in the computer lab. I'm like, this is probably where he emailed his application to Taylor. Like, I'm right here. I was at the computer. Like, Taylor was at. Like, I'm renting a moped. I'm like, this is, he probably rented this Uber. You know, like, who knows? Like, I could be touching history. And uh, my wife's like, hey, what do you want to commemorate? What do you want to commemorate the time? Do you want um, a thermos, sticker? you know, shirt, and I don't know, I just thought, no, I don't want any of those, and in, in God's humor, I walked across the street, and right across the street was an antique shop, and I said, come with me, Jess, and we walked in, in the back corner, there was a barrel of old, late 1800 cricket balls, and I held that cricket ball, and I just thought, man, what's my cricket ball? What's something I want more than anything else? What's holding me back from following God fully? Is it a degree? Is it a relationship? Is it a major? Is it a zip code? Is it safety? And I have that on my desk right now. We have a four-year-old son. His name is Cruz Stud. And when he goes off to college, hopefully U of A, stay close. When he goes off to college, I'm going to take that cricket ball to his dorm room. I'm going to say, son, don't let anything stand between your walk with God and you. And hopefully that cricket ball will find its way in his heart. Good stuff? You tracking with me? History's pretty cool, isn't it? History's pretty cool. Jump back to America, Luther Wishart. So just to recap, William Carey in England, Samuel Mills in America, John Sung, America. We had Amy Carmichael, England. We had um, C.T. Studd, England. Now come back to America. We had a gentleman by the name of Luther Wishard. Luther Wishard was in charge of something called the YMCA, the Young Men's Christian Association. But his p specific thing he was in charge of was the collegiate division. And so his job, check this job out, his job was to go campus to campus all across America, discipling men, helping men. It was the young men's. It wasn't for women. It was young men's. Helping men gather together and learn how to share their faith on campus. And as he's cruising along campus to campus, he's on a train. And someone hands him a magazine called The Missionary Review of the World. And he picks it up and he starts reading it. And on page four, maybe you've heard the story, maybe you haven't. On page four, he reads about Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts. Five guys starting the, uh, the birth of American missions. And he gets his schedule. And he's like, he's looking. Brown, Princeton, Pencil University of Pennsylvania. And he's looking, oh my goodness, February 16th, I'm scheduled to be at Williams College where the Haystack prayer meeting happened, where Samuel Mills went to school. 
February 16th, he shows up on campus. He's like, where is it? Where is it? He knew, he knew it was on campus somewhere. This six foot nine statue with a globe on top, a haystack in the middle, and five names underneath beginning with Samuel Mills. It's still there. I took that picture. And he gets down in the snow at this unbelievable moment. And he says this, Lord, he says, I don't know what happened 80 years ago. This is now 1886, 80 years after Samuel Mills. He says, I don't know what happened 80 years ago, but what you did then, do it again. What was theirs to begin, let it be ours to complete. And then he said, Lord, before I, I do anything, I have to first offer my own life. I have to be willing to go anywhere at any time and do anything for you. And on his knees in the snow in Williamstown, Massachusetts, Luther Wishard has an idea that will change missions history for the next five decades. On his knees in the snow in February of 1886, Luther Wishard had an idea that would change missions history for the next five decades. He says, I'm connected to all these students, freshmen and sophomores who are guys all over the U.S. He telegraphs one of his good friends, D.L. Moody. He says, Moody, can we host a, a summer project four weeks on your, at your boarding school, 80, you know, 90 miles east of here at Mount Hermon, 90 miles east of uh, Williams College in Williamstown at Mount Hermon? Can we host? I'll get 250 students. I'm recruiting from 90 campuses. I want you to be the keynote speaker from 9 to noon on the book of Matthew. And we're going to see if we can raise up a missions movement. D.L. Moody says yes. Luther Wishard takes the recruitment. He has from February 17th to June 4th. Okay, So he's got a little bit of time. He recruits 251 students from 89 campuses. They show up so excited to see D.L. Moody who had had a reputation. But he needed a mission-minded student. He needed someone who would organically, within the group of the 250, recruit to missions. And so he goes to his alma mater, Princeton University. He knocks on the door of where he graduated from, a guy he'd heard about named Robert Wilder. He says, Mr. Wilder, are you a senior at Princeton? He says, yes. He says, uh, 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 is your dad Royal Wilder, who uh, was a missionary to India in the 1940s? And started the Missionary View of the World magazine. He's like, yes. He's like, I need to borrow you for four weeks. I'm only inviting freshmen and sophomores, but I want you to come because of your mission's vision. He looks at Wishard and he says, Wishard, I'm a senior. I've recruited 23 others to sail with me to India when I graduate in May. I cannot delay and give you four weeks. So Wishard goes to Mount Holyoke School for Girls and he talks to Robert's sister who sees the potential, looks at Luther and says, my brother will be there. She telegraphs Robert, my dearest Robert, 
We found the telegraph. My dearest Robert, it is worth delaying four weeks, even four years, for this could be the mighty missions movement we've been praying for. If you go, I will pray every day for 100 to be long-term missionaries. Sincerely, G period. She always signed it G period. Robert decides to go. The first week, he has 25 people signed up. They sign a declaration that Grace gave him. Have them sign this, Robert. That way, when they put pen to paper, they put the heart to the ship. Have them sign this. We are willing and desirous to go to the uttermost parts of the earth. By the first week, 25 signed it. By the second week, over 60 had signed it. By the third week, he had 80. I mean, this is just crazy. The last day of the, con the, last day of the summer project, D.L. Moody is like, hey, I think Mr. Wilder wants to speak. Wishart, is that okay? He's rather young. And, and Wishart's like, let him speak. He gets up and he says, I'm going to give a talk called this. All should go and go to all. And he begins to challenge them to be missionaries. He says, if you want to be a missionary, meet in front of the chapel. We're going to pin a number on you. We're going to pray for you. We want you to write down the campus you're from, the year you graduate, and the country you're sailing to. It was exactly 100. It's called the Mount Hermon 100. If you look close, you can see the numbers pinned on them. You see Mr. Wishard. Oh my goodness, are you joking? This is incredible. Wishard was excited, right? But he remembered what he heard about the Cambridge Seven in England, how they traveled campus to campus. And he's like, how many women weren't invited? How many juniors and seniors weren't invited? And so he invites two students to travel campus to campus, a traveling team to go campus to campus and invite students with the story of what God did at Mount Hermon. John Foreman and Robert Wilder were the two who volunteered. From 1886 to 1887, they traveled to 166 universities. During that year, they recruited 2,106 students to be missionaries. Think about this. By 1886, America had only sent 1,900 missionaries in its history. That means in one year, Robert Wilder and John Foreman doubled the missionary force. Talk about the power of university students. Oh, to be strategically located by a college campus today. Oh, that'd be incredible, wouldn't it? To tap into the power of a university student. Think about that. Think of just the blessing God's given us as a body to be this close. Robert Wilder came back and said, man, I've given you a year and four weeks. I've got to sail to India. Luther Wishard's like, well, who's going to lead this movement? Who's going to take over? We can't just let it fail. We have 2,106 volunteers. <laughs> and, uh, John, uh, Robert Wilder says, you know what? Of the Mount Hermon 100, number 23 was John Mott. Let's invite John Mott. He's a senior at Cornell University. He's going to finish, and he's, he can lead this movement. And so, John Mott, wow. As a sophomore at Cornell, he came in late to the YMCA meeting when a guy named J.K. Studd, brother of C.T. Studd, was speaking. J.K. Studd was saying, 
Young man, are you seeking great things for yourself? Seek them not. Seek first the kingdom of God. Mott's like, is he speaking to me? Mott decides that he would go to the Mount Hermon conference. He hears and meets Wilder during those four weeks. He's number 23 of the Mount Hermon conference. He ends up saying, you know what? I'm going to lead this movement for the next 40 years. For the next 40 years of his life, he leads the student volunteer movement. The student volunteer movement was history's single most powerful mission organization. Over 100,000 recruited, 20,000 sailed, and 80,000 stayed behind. One out of every 37 students during this time was activated. John Armott crossed the Atlantic over 100 times in his lifetime. John Armott raised $300 million for world evangelization. And in 1946, President Harry Truman awarded John Armott the Nobel Peace Prize. We have an 11-year-old son. His name is Axel Mott. All I knew about where John Mott was buried, there's no picture of John Mott's grave. All I knew, it was in the Washington Cathedral next to Helen Keller because he won the Nobel Peace Prize, he could be buried there. And I thought, man, I'm going to, my friend Spencer Bauer was headed to to D.C. And I said, Spencer, I will give you $100 if you text me a picture of Mott's grave. And let me just tell you this. This isn't a blind squirrel. It's at the Washington Cathedral next to Helen Keller. This is doable. I mean, he had the money in his account. He's like, oh, he goes to D.C., forget the Capitol, forget the White House. Where does Spencer Bauer head first? The Washington Cathedral. He walks in with his camera and his bride goes to the lady in the front and says, excuse me, ma'am, would you look up where John Mott's buried? She says, yes. She tells him where. He says, thank you. She says, excuse me, sir, do you have FBI clearance? He says, why? She says, well, no one can go in the crypt without it. He says, ma'am, I will pay you $50 if you go downstairs and take a picture. I believe this is the only picture of Mott's grave. He served the Lord with vision, a witness to the wideness of God's glory. Across the world, he stood for Christian peace and unity. A leader of youth, he strove for Christ's kingdom in the hearts of men. And then the verse, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things have passed away. All things are new. We were at the Yale Archives researching Mott, found his Bible and an inscription inside it. Radical decisions of the founding fathers of my life. Can I now waver? Man, that's what I want my son Axel to know. You walk into our kitchen, you'll see John Mott right there. I want Axel to know that's your hero, son. No one else, that's your hero. You got one more in you? Have you had fun tonight? History is so boring. I was yawning. Are you joking? This is so random. I don't like this at all. I'm not really a reader. I'm not not really a reader. Let's do one more. And then we'll go to breakouts and let you guys 
discuss this stuff. 1917, Los Angeles, Occidental College, Cameron Townsend is a junior. He's a junior. And he hears about this uh, opportunity to go to Guatemala and sell Bibles. It actually paid. He's like, are you, I'm doing it. Like, I'm going to go to Guatemala. I'm going to travel and get paid and sell Bibles door to door. His parents were adamant, you are not doing this. He's like, Mom, Dad, I'm coming back. I'll finish. They're like, you're not going. He's like, Mom, Dad, I'm, I'm, I'm going to come back. It's just a summer, summer job. They're like, you're not going. So while he's in Guatemala, um, he, uh, he's selling these Spanish Bibles, and this boy comes up to him. And the boy's like, hey, how smart's your God? And Townsend's like, oh, he is all smart. And the boy says, really? I don't speak Spanish. I only read Kekechuan. Can you give me a Kekechuan New Testament so I can learn about your God? He says, I don't have one. He says, your God's not smart enough to speak my language. He can't be my God then. This haunted Townsend. He says, Mom, Dad, I'm not coming home until the New Testament is in the Kekechuan language. It took way longer than he thought, 11 years. He meets, a wi- he meets his wife down there. Her name is Elvira. And together they are translating the Kekechuan as fast as they can. And just before the translation was finished, Elvira dies. And uh, stacked next to the Stacked next to her, to her coffin, they put what they had in the Kekechuan language up to that point. When he finally finishes the New Testament, he comes back to America. He goes to, goes to Los Angeles, his church that sent him out. Had, had a big celebration for him. All of his supporters, the church, the body, his parents sat right there. And uh, they, they, they introduced Cameron Towns and he got up and he said... Uh, He said, uh, you know, this isn't actually finished. I purposely did not translate the last two verses in Revelation 22, 21. Mother, would you come up here? Here's how you translate the last, wor- the last word, second to last word in Revelation, all in Kekechuan. And she, he showed her how to write it. Dad, will you come up here? And he gave his father the privilege of writing in Kekechuan, amen, period. Those who've been most opposed to his translating the scripture, he gave the opportunity to finish it. Then he says, what language is next? And he's like, oh my gosh, there's 50 languages in Mexico without a translation. I can't do this alone. He says, let's start an organization. He recruits college students. He says, man, there's no, there's no degree in linguistics you can get in America. So I got to have a seven-week project. And I got to fast-track these guys to be linguists. He brought a Kekechuan believer. He, he had four college students, the first four linguists. He trained them. They went to Mexico. He's like, we got to start an organization. We got to call it something. Who was the first guy to translate the New Testament in English? John Wycliffe. Let's call it Wycliffe Bible Translators. Today, Wycliffe Bible Translators has translated 500 New Testament, different languages. 
500 languages. They still have 1,800 to go to end Bible poverty. Cameron Townsend is 72 years old. I mean, 72. Listen to what he says. The greatest missionary is the Bible and the mother tongue. It needs no furlough and is never considered a foreigner. At 72, most people are looking for golf carts and vegetable gardens and living communities, right? He's like, right, he's like Soviet Union. He's like Soviet Union. He applies for a visa. At se- he starts learning Russian at 72. He applies for a visa in the Soviet Union. He gets a letter back from the consulate. Dear sir, you've been denied. Wait two years. He writes back at 72, I can't afford two years. They grant him a visa. He spends the rest of his life. He spends the rest of his life translating scripture into Russian. And if you by chance go to Waxhaw, North Carolina, and you're a Christ follower, and you stand in front of Cameron Townsend's grave, his own grave can mobilize you to activation. By by love, serve one another. Finish the task. Translate the scriptures into every language. Think about that. Think about that. Do you know who Cameron Townsend was recruited by? I have his application. It says student volunteer movement. It says, who'd you hear speak? He says, Mott changed my life. When historians look back at the incredible movement of the student volunteer movement, people like to look at Mott, Wilder, Luther Wishard, Cameron Townsend. But there was a girl named Grace Wilder who believed in her brother prayed for 100 and then herself sailed to India where she died at 55, never married, always single. Grace Wilder. I actually, they had a commemoration for Grace Wilder in New York City and I have what the guy spoke over her during her commemoration. Today we celebrate Grace Wilder, the mother of the student volunteer movement. And tonight, I brought with me my daughter, who's 13. Who'd we name her? We named her Camden Wilder. And I tell you what, man, I want that girl to have Grace Wilder as her hero. You know, the biography of Grace Wilder has never been written. And maybe you, Camden, will write it. History is his story, right? We can't see where we're going unless we've seen where we've been. What does that do to what God can do? The power of the mobilizer, the importance of a mobilizer, the the person who activates others. Look at the Mills, look at the Taylor, look at the Robert Wilder, the Grace Wilder. Millions of missionaries and mission hearts would not have been exposed. So, whether you are a goer or a stayer, you can be a mobilizer. And that's what we're going to look at as we continue on called and sent.
trick. 